Welcome to House Calls, where we get to talk to investment bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of Key Bank Capital Markets Incorporated. I'm your host, Dave Johnson, the CEO of Foresight Health and the author of The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, delivering kinder, smarter, affordable care for all. I co-author a monthly thought leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of Key Bank Capital Markets. In each piece, we do a deep dive on a fascinating sector of the dynamic healthcare industry. But on this occasion, we're going to do something a little different. On October 19th and 20th, Kane Brothers hosted its ninth annual private company healthcare conference at the New York Palace Hotel with a gathering of leaders from for-profit and not-for-profit healthcare companies, private equity companies, venture capital companies, and other healthcare corporations. It was the first time since 2019 that the conference had taken place in person, and it drew the largest registration ever with over 600 attendees. Good for Kane Brothers. Kane Brothers asked me to host a fireside chat with my friend, Dr. Zeke Emanuel, the chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania, and as it happens, one of the architects of the Affordable Care Act. We had a great discussion that spanned a whole host of topics from the construction of the Affordable Care Act to the role of technology in healthcare to Zeke's big, bold predictions for the future of healthcare. They do not disappoint. We'd like to replay an edited version of my interview with Zeke for our house call listeners. So here we go. Well, we're going to have some fun today. And by the way, isn't it great to be back in person and interacting again? You can feel the energy in the room. The only, when I was joking with Zeke earlier, we've known each other a long time, but the only thing between what's on Zeke's mind and what he says in public is a question. So I want you to think <laughs> about whatever the, your, your good questions are. We'll talk for 40 minutes or so, then we'll have some time for questions. And then uh, I'm going to ask Zeke to make a big, bold prediction about health care over the next five to 10 years. But without further ado, Zeke Emanuel. Uh, by the way, Zeke rode over on his bike from the Moynihan train station. He used his Lyft app. And when he came in, he had his bike helmet dangling from the back of his backpack. So he is a healthy guy who lives uh, what he preaches. Steve Jobs had this great quote that the dots in life connect in retrospect. <laughs> you make decisions in the moment. But yeah. But so Obama gets elected president. He's a Chicago guy. Your brother becomes chief of staff. And you're brought in as one of the principal architects of the Affordable Care Act, having had this really interesting background in both medicine, education, and policy. So talk to us just about what the architecture process was like in putting it together and what did you like about it? What would you replace? And everybody knows that uh, <laughs> making public policy is like making sausage. You know, you don't want to see what goes into it. But tell us I, about the I, sausage. I'll tell you uh, two or three things which stand out. The first is there was lots of tension on the team. And I break it down by the economic team and the others, which were mainly the HHS Team. The economic team was, you know, Peter Orzag, who brought me into OMB to, yeah. to do this. Larry Summers. Good runner. Larry had a, another oncologist, actually, who worked at McKinsey also. And we were, you know, focused on trying to do cost issues, trying to make sure that was in the bill, trying to make sure payment change happened so that we could incentivize. And there were a lot of people who weren't directly in healthcare, but in, you know, accounting and economic analysis on that team. 
And then there was the HHS team, which was totally obsessed by just expanding coverage, no matter what the cost. And we did not see eye to eye on many, many things. What's the subsidy schedule supposed to be? How much transformation should we require? We were talking beforehand, should people who have employer-sponsored insurance be able to go into the exchanges and get the tax credit if their employer contributed to the purchase of that. The economics team is, that would be great. We'll get more people in, more people into the exchanges, make them more stable, probably bring the risk down because employed people are better risk. You know, they kill that. You know, they got the IRS to say, no, you, employer gives you money to go into the exchanges. They're violating the employer mandate, and there's no tax exclusion advantage to it. It is like, well, you know, that's why we have between 10 and 14 million people in the exchanges instead of 60, 70, 80 million people. Right after the ACA passed, my brother Ari calls me up. Should I cancel insurance and send everyone to the exchange? I said, wait a year or two and see how they salt out. And, you know, unfortunately, I think it could have been a lot better, but so that's that tension. The second thing is, and this probably many of you do not fully pay attention to, although may be aware of, everything in Washington is obsessed by the CBO score. Right? We think about the merits of the, of the politics and the policy. BS. It's about how are they going to score it? Are we saving? Do we have enough you know, pay-fors in it? And the CBO controls lots of decision-making. So we spent an enormous amount of time at OMB trying to recreate the CBO's model so we would be able in real time to test out different adjustments to the subsidy schedule, different benefit packages wow. and all those things. An enormous amount of time on that. And some of you may recall the scandal that HHS simultaneously was paying Jonathan Gruber at MIT hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to run his model because CBO took his model and refined it. And it was like, this is nuts. This is not the way to do <laughs> policy, right? We should be thinking about the policy we want and then get the right pay-fors for it rather than everything for, you know, what's the CBO score? As, no, and part of that is yeah. an overhang. Again, not many of you may be old enough to remember the Clinton problem where the Clintons put in a bill and Bob Reischauer scored it at CBO and basically said, all the money in healthcare is now on the federal budget. Let me just tell you, that was the kiss of death to the Clinton health care reform, because you couldn't have $3 trillion or whatever it was, $2 trillion at that time on the federal budget. You know, basically, it'd be health care and nothing else. So CBO does a very good job of keeping people honest, but it's a bad situation where trying to target, because CBO discounts cost savings all the time. My little anecdote on that is now I think by CBO score in 2010, we should be at 22, 23% of GDP for healthcare. We're, we're not quite at 18. We, we stayed below 18. Now, we can argue whether that's the Affordable Care Act or not, but we have stayed down. It's been relatively flat as a percent of GDP for the last 12 years. They always undervalue the cost control in any bill. Maybe a right undervaluing, but it's led to a big problem now in terms of the accuracy of their predictions. Yeah. So those are some of the sausage making that happens. And, and by the way, the president only decides the big issues, right? Below that, it's really the staff deciding, well, you know, that subsidy schedule, it didn't go to the president. It, it's not a presidential decision. But it's a lot of us who, you know, are we going to have the cliff or not the cliff? And, you know, where do you, how far out does zero premium go and things like that? 
Yeah. Well, you know, predictions are difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> well, I would say one other thing we don't pay enough attention to in this country in general when thinking about legislation is simplicity. So one of the big problems, in my opinion, on retrospect, and I contributed to it, so I'm taking responsibility for it as much as anyone else, is, you know, adding the exchanges, right, on top of Medicaid expansion and everything else, you know, Medicare Advantage, traditional, you know, it's just a very complicated system. And it's really stupid. If we had created either everyone goes into Medicaid or we create an exchange, we're going to put Medicaid in the exchange, right, so that they can choose plans at zero premium with limits on out-of-pockets, maybe even throw MA into the exchanges so we have one mega exchange. First of all, it's half the market then, 150, 160 million people, unbelievably powerful market, right? And simple. You're either getting employer-sponsored insurance or you go into the exchange and you buy your coverage with the subsidy. A lot better than what we have. And yet we created this crazy quilt system. So I think focusing much more on simplicity is something really important in public policy, and we do it quite poorly, and I can go into the 27 reasons it's bad. Yeah. Well, and there's also a huge amount of irony baked into American health care. I mean, Obamacare used as its model Romney care in Massachusetts. Right. And a lot of the ideas for Romney care came from the Heritage Foundation, the mandates, right. the exchanges, risk quarters for And my insurance. former colleague, Mark Pauley, who developed it for yeah. them. Yeah. And yet then Obama and the Democrats passed the Affordable Care Act, basically Republican health care policy, with zero Republican support. Talk about how do we get consensus around the idea that everyone in this country deserves access to affordable health insurance that provides appropriate care that doesn't create bankruptcy for the country, and how do the sides talk to each other in a way that that's the focus rather than well, let me the back make, and forth. Let me make out. three points. Okay. First, Olympia Snow voted for the Affordable Care Act. Republican senator from Maine voted for the Affordable Care Act in committee on the Finance Committee, the crucial Senate Finance Committee. She voted for it. Now, for a variety of reasons, Peter Orzak used to go to her office, get her list of demands, come back, hand me the list, make sure these are in the bill. And so I'd run around and put whatever her demands were. And we satisfied her demands by and large. And she voted for it. And then all the pressure of those 39 other Republican senators came down on her head, and she ended up voting against it when essentially the same bill came to the floor. Wow. Not essentially, the bill came to the floor that she had agreed to and voted for. The fact that it was a Republican, basically a Republican bill, and by the way, since 1946, right, Republicans have been introducing a bill to basically have exchanges, give Americans who don't have insurance subsidies to buy private insurance, and they used to have a clause all through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, not-for-profit insurance. Richard Nixon sponsored that. Jacob Javits sponsored that. That was their plan. And they had that same plan. They didn't have a mandate, but they had that same plan, basically. And in the 1990s, Heritage threw on the mandate. That's why, if you ask me, Republicans have not, in 12 years since passage of the Affordable Care Act, produced a credible alternative. Because the Affordable Care Act is their alternative. It's just that simple. And I do think we have a consensus that everyone ought to get health insurance. And the reason I think we have consensus is you look at the ballot initiatives in states like Idaho, Utah, Oklahoma, Missouri, 
for expanding Medicaid. And all of those are red states, red as red can be, and they've all passed. The public in red states believes healthcare is a right, everyone in America, and I don't use right, you can, I've, I've written more than probably a million and a half words, and you can you count probably less than a thousand times I've used the word right. I do not think most yeah. things are rights. I just yeah. don't, but Americans do. Right. And those citizens in red states think it because they've passed over the state legislature objections. And we're gonna see there are only three more of the states that haven't expanded Medicaid that can have public ballots. We're gonna see, I think there are two on the 2022 election and we're gonna see how those go. I'm happy to take a bet from anyone in this room that they'll pass. Well, and what those states also have in common are largely rural populations that oh, yeah. lack access. Totally. You know. Well, let's, let's talk about the current state of affairs. Why, was, you want people to be depressed? Yeah, a little bit. So I was joking earlier with Zeke that nonprofit health care is the only business in the history of the world with monopoly pricing power that figures out how to lose money. And I actually believe we're witnessing the beginning of the collapse of the nonprofit model. I don't know how many of you follow earning statements from nonprofit health systems, but Providence, the big one in, on the West Coast, has lost a billion dollars from operations in the first two quarters. Ascension, the largest healthcare organization, lost 800 million and change in the first three quarters. Mass General Brigham. Their numbers weren't as large. They were in the hundreds of millions, but the negative margin was 3%. And so why is that happening? Volumes down, payer mixes is getting worse, expenses are out of control. There's no appetite anymore in the government to provide incremental subsidies like there was during the CARES Act. And at the same time, the, the country's probably sicker than it's ever been. I just found out this week that China, China, now has longer life expectancy than the United States. So, Zeke, kind of looking out there, when you look at the, the challenges, we're spending more money than we ever have before, and when you throw the government money in, we're actually at 20% of our economy in healthcare. We're sicker in many ways than we've ever been before. Where do we go from here? Well, it's quite clear that the healthcare system is not responding to the illnesses that the country has. We're not yeah. making them better and the investment is not paying off. You know, a third of what we spend on the healthcare dollar goes to hospitals. I think then, frankly, the not-for-profits have been able to jack up their rates on the commercial side, make a lot of money. They have not been forced to be efficient. They have not been forced to actually take out costs, and they don't. <laughs> if the CEO gets rewarded for the toys he buys, the top-line revenue, and not the margin, which seems to be the case in almost every place in the country, that's what they'll do. You know, we've been studying what has happened to COVID and what's carried over from COVID in terms of practice changes. It's quite clear that a lot of the elective procedures have not come back. It's also quite clear that we've become even more comfortable doing more things at home. So one of the things we've done at Penn, one of my good colleagues, I wish I could take credit for, you know, I trained in the early 1990s in oncology. We used to bring patients in, hydrate them up, give them their antiemetics, and then give them chemotherapy, 24-hour admission, and then discharge. That's how we gave chemotherapy, right? They're doing chemotherapy, including many very highly emetogenic chemotherapies at home because of COVID. I was like, if you had told me in 1990 we were gonna do at-home chemotherapy, I would have said there's a bed for you at McLean's Hospital. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Really, there's just no chance we were going to do it. Now, okay, you're going to tell me we got better antiemetics. All of that is true. These are still very toxic drugs, and we're doing them at home. Well, that tells you everything you need to know about the future of the American hospital, right? We're doing surgeries, outpatient. We're doing chemotherapy at home, and we're going to have Penn's not going to be the only one. In five years, it's going to be standard practice to do most of it at home, right? We've moved in urology away from whipping out prostates, right, to watchful waiting. Huge increase in watchful waiting going on, right? Hospitals are in serious trouble. They should be delivering only quaternary care and doing it very efficiently. And it's just not happening on the efficiency side of things. They've tried to make it up in pricing. They've tried to make it up on things that are totally inefficient, like proton beam. You know, how long is that game going to go on? Not very long is going to be the answer. And I think the other problem is we've gotten to the limit of the gimmicks we can do, right? It's the average annual family premium now is 22, 23,000, right? That's ridiculous, where the median income in America for a family is 69,000, right? A third is going to this healthcare thing, and employers, they've tried all their little tricks, right? We're going to do high deductibles. You know, you know better than I. We probably reached the max of high deductibles. I would not be surprised if we're going to have some legislation that's going to uh, do more on capping them because even insured people are wondering, should I go to the emergency room because of the deductible copay situation? It's kind of crazy. I just don't think we have a responsive insurance market. They can't bring costs down. Uh, they don't have the bargaining power. The hospital system is not responsive. So I think we're headed to a crisis. And everyone's acting in their local self-interest with no long-term self-interest. Congress doesn't even want to touch this with a 10-foot pole. Just think about if you were thinking about big health care reform. What happened after the ACA? We passed the ACA. The Democrats proceeded to lose four straight elections on the congressional side and barely squeaked through on the presidential side with Obama beating Romney and Ryan in 2012. Yeah. Right. And then we lost 2016. OK, you're going to do major health care reform again politically. That's suicide. No one is going to undertake it. OK, it's just not going to happen. So we rely on the private sector. We rely on regulation, CMMI and anything else CMS is going to do when they're aggressive. But at the moment, they're not very aggressive. You know, it's a serious, serious problem. And yet now the Affordable Care Act, the public likes the Affordable Care Act, right? Very supportive of it. But immediately after passage, it did not go well. And that has, that's, will scare and scar every politician. We're just not going to have big legislation going yeah. forward. So there's one prediction. The next five years, forget a big piece. The only maybe is drugs. And I'm a little skeptical about the drugs part because it doesn't people aren't going to see a benefit until 2026 2027 and then it's predominantly going to be a benefit on the medicare side not the commercial side so well one thing you didn't mention in that is the 900,000 pound gorilla in the, in the room and you and I just co-wrote a piece on the healthcare industrial complex and when you look at a legislation like the surprise billing legislation that everybody agreed was a good idea going in and then what came out, an arbitration <laughs> process that's going to increase costs. So you got 
sort of the politics of it and the demonization that's that going and the fear. But then you also got these incredibly strong vested interests that are willing to put their own interests, the conjunction of the bureaucracy, the industry, and, and Congress putting their own interests above and beyond those of society. So that makes it even harder and probably puts more pressure on the market to kind of come up with ways that are going to reform the healthcare system from outside in rather than inside out. It just comment on the industrial complex and, well, and, and how change actually can happen, I guess. So if you think, in my view is, the uneven haphazard quality we have in our system, not going to sink the healthcare system. The costs are going to sink the healthcare system, and so we need to be focused on the costs. And, you know, they're sinking a lot of American families. Um, and if you think about how do we transform costs, you need to change the incentives, right? We need to change the fee-for-service incentives so procedures aren't incentivized, that there's some link between what we're paying and the health outcomes, not, I mean, we have a system now, you know, the RVU system links what we're paying with the effort put in. Very poorly correlated, but it's the effort put in. Why should we pay for effort, right? In my classroom, when I grade students at Wharton, I do not grade on effort, okay? I just don't, right? I don't care how hard you work. Did you get the material and can you think with it? That's what counts. In healthcare, the thing is, you know, have we made you healthier? That's the question. And we don't pay for that. It's idiotic. So we have to reform that fee-for-service payment. We also have to shift to more value-based payment. And the one good thing I can say happening is I see a lot more interest in that. Okay. Um, I see the blues trying to take, do something with it. They're never terribly creative. I hope I don't insult anyone. But once one or two does something, they all line up. They're very good that way. And I do think that there's a lot more interest in doing that and doing it right. We have done it poorly hitherto. I've spent a lot of time thinking about the behavioral economics of capitation, bundles, incentives. We've got to get that right. That will not solve the problem. Incentives alone, and I know I'm talking to people who've all got you know, advanced degrees in economics or business. Incentives are necessary but not sufficient. And your thinking is important, but it's not going to do enough. We need two other things. We need infrastructure. Lots of infrastructure, and I can give you a lot of examples. So we have a whole program shifting site of service of surgery, getting orthopods and GI doctors and others to shift their site of service to lower cost places. And it turns out part of what they need is they don't want to recredential at those lower cost places, right? They want to know who the anesthesiologist is. Can they work well with that? So we've got a micro-targeted. You've done some surgeries at this ambulatory surgery center. You've already used it. You're comfortable with it. You're credentialed there. Just do more. And here's, by the way, a 50% incentive to switch because that switch is worth $10,000 to the payer. And so paying you 50% more work. We've been able in the first year to switch 10 to 20% of people and net of incentives save 10 to 20%. And, you know, it's just starting. Once they're hooked, they're actually quite positive. The net promoter score is over 60 for this program. So you need the infrastructure, but you got it. The infrastructure requires understanding the local doc and not just paint with a broad right. brush. And the last thing is they need information. 
Where is the cheaper place? I'm a doctor. I have no idea where it's cheaper to do the surgery. You have to tell me. I have no idea, for example, which of my patients were recently discharged from the hospital was a serious problem. And as a primary care doctor, I need to see them within seven days, right, for medicine, re reconciliation, et cetera, because we know if you see your PCP within seven days, your chance of readmission plummets, you know? So there are lots of things, but we have to give them the, in the right incentives to do that, so pay heavily for that, you know, seeing a patient within seven days of hospital discharge or EW. Give them the infrastructure to get that and give them yeah. information. The information also has to be behaviorally informed. So here's how you're doing. Here's how much money you've left on the table. By the way, here's, you know, that guy down the street. Here's how he's doing compared to you. Very, very powerful. So we need, beyond the incentives, we need the information and the infrastructure. Putting all that together is complicated, but we now have the tools to do it. And I think we've been able to show in some good experiments that it works. And I think, again, over the next four or five years, because we've run out of other techniques, that'll become much more common. Yeah, bottom-up, market-driven reform, bastardizing Martin Luther King. The, <laughs> the long arc of markets points toward value. I'm going to ask Zeke about a topic I'm sure you're all interested in, which is innovation, investing, and so on. So, Zeke, you've looked at, at healthcare from, from all sides now, you know, from, as a physician, as a policymaker, as part of Oak, uh, venture capital, as an ethicist. And so even though funding has come down and valuations have come way down and there's down rounds and, and so on, it does feel like the industry's starting to move and focus on the things that are really gonna make a difference. So just talk to us a little bit about the landscape and with regard to digital health, which is what a lot of people track, uh, just what's smoke there and what's signal and uh, <laughs> how that all kind of comes out you know, from so your perspective. I, I, let me say two things about things digital, or three things. First, I think it's really, really important, and I've written this in the Wall Street Journal and other places, we need to get more automation in healthcare. Back office automation, but also clinical automation. We have about 10% of healthcare jobs are now unfilled. Burnout is high and we can't just throw people at the problem. And so there are a lot of companies out there I've engaged in one, so for truth in advertising, I work somewhat with Notable, but I've talked to lots and lots of the companies that are doing automation, and um, we just need more of that and get it better and wider, scheduling, uh, remote check-ins, reminders, et cetera. So that part of it, I think, and, and obviously billings is a huge element, filling out all the quality. We're nowhere near the limit to what we can do. I think we need a lot more of that and a lot more installed. And this is another place I think hospitals have been incredibly uh, slow at uptake. Second thing I would say is, you know, you've all seen the telemedicine went up at Penn, it went up to 50% and then has plummeted. One of the important things, and we're writing an op-ed on this issue, is why could we in 10 days go to telemedicine at 50% of visits, right? We suspended all those goddamn rules, right? Huh. Cross-state. Make it simple. Right. right yeah. Cross-state malpractice, cross-state payment, cross-state licensure, all of that stuff with the stroke of a pen. It's an emergency. Get rid of it. And it was really good. And now 
and then also we paid for it. Crazily, the payment is going back to you know, antiquity. Um, and all these rules are being reimposed. It's insane. We showed it was beneficial. We showed you could do it literally overnight by suspending these rules. And now we're just going to reimpose the rules as if we learned nothing. It is insane. You know which to me. What, what drives me crazy is, uh, and it's largely driven by Republicans, but about half the state legislatures oh. are trying to address what the AMA calls uh, scope of license yeah. creep. Uh, and they're putting in place to, you know, more to restrictions. More restrictions. Yeah. It's like the dumbest thing in the world. I agree with you. So if you, I don't know if it's still true, and, but I looked at this probably about five years ago in relation to primary care doctors in Oklahoma, right? A state that doesn't have anywhere near enough doctors and certainly not near enough doctors in the smaller towns. And their scope of practice on nurse practitioners squeezing it down. It's like, you know, this is insane. The only people you're going to get to these small towns are going to be nurse practitioners, right? And you're making it impossible for them to operate independently. It is totally nuts. The last thing I would say is um, one of the areas I track, track pretty carefully is remote patient monitoring. You know, lots of, uh, I would say, smoke, not a lot of fire there. Because I have said this many, many times, remote patient monitoring is of no use, right? This is why the tech companies, every time they come into healthcare, they screw it up. Google screws it up, you know, Facebook, Apple, because they've got the sensors, they've got the monitoring, but that's not what healthcare is about. Healthcare is about what do you do once you have that? Figuring out, differentiating the noise from the signal, right? Is that blood pressure real or not? And then, how are you going to intervene? And the intervene isn't going to be tech. It's going to have to be something people. So we need to go from remote patient monitoring to remote patient management. And it's got three phases. It's got the sensors we have to deploy. It's got differentiating signal from noise. We're going to need AI and automation and machine learning on that. And then we need a management system of how do we get to that patient in the most efficient manner. Who can we manage over the phone? Who do we have to send a nurse out to? Who has to come in? When we get that perfected, and by the way, it cannot be, oh, I can do it for diabetes, and I can do it for COPD, and I can do it for CHF, as if patients each come in with something separate, right? Patients don't exist like that. They exist with diabetes, COPD, and CHF altogether. Yeah. And yeah. you need a single platform that is going to be able to handle all of it. I think that's going to be a tremendous hot area. And Five years is my sort of Omni thinking channel, about my right? time, timeline. And omni-channel, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And not, I think that's the timeline when the company that gets that right hits, that's bingo. That is, it's certainly a unicorn, and, and it's probably worth, would be rapidly worth $100 billion, because that is what everyone is looking for and needing. Um, and by the way, a lot of that management doesn't require an MD, right? Following the guideline on hypertension, following the guideline on diabetes, following lots of those guidelines does not require an MD. You need MD backup for the hard cases. But anyway, I think those are the three things. we got to fix the, all the regulation around telemedicine. Just have to do that. Um, it's kind of nutso that we're not, right? We've got to get to remote patient management, not remote patient monitoring at all. So, Yeah, the... Uh 
Whenever I hear the phrase AI now with a company, I ask, well, what's your A stand for? <laughs> and I'm up to like 10 words, right? <laughs> Autonomous, artificial, augmented, yeah. adjacent, so on and so forth. And I, I kind of come down at the end of the day, it's, it's just intelligence. And there's two kinds of intelligence. There's machine intelligence and human intelligence. And I think what you're describing in remote patient management is optimizing Both. what the machine can do and what the, and the good news there is we'll make the burden that we currently are asking caregivers to uh, carry much, much less. I agree. And totally. we'll be healthier and more cost effective in the process. That's the silver lining in yeah. all this. And we're counting on you to all do it. So we got a few minutes for questions. Anybody dying to ask, seek something? Oh, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you, Wyatt, for that question. For those of you in the audience who didn't hear Wyatt Ritchie's question, he wants to know why there isn't more conversation about the potential bankruptcy of the Medicare Trust Fund. It's scheduled, according to current estimates, to go bankrupt in a couple of years. So, Zeke, what can you tell us about that? So, I'm literally writing now an op-ed that is the three threats to Medicare. And the opening is about the Medicare trust fund and the fact that no one is talking about it. <laughs> you are the first person in, I don't know, forever that's raised the fact that, you know, by 2026, we're going to be broke, right? <laughs> um, and you don't hear a single congressperson talk about. The administration wants to ignore the issue. But it's four years away. And it's as predictable as anything, right? And we're taking no steps. So what can we do? I think there's a short-term set of solutions. Ultimately, we're going to have to raise the payroll tax. I have no doubt about it. So all of you are going to see your taxes go up because Biden and if the next administration is Democratic, we're going to have this 400,000 threshold, no raising tax on anyone under 400,000. So all of you are going to pay more, but you know, other people won't. There's interim steps we can do to kick that can down the road. So I think that there are two important ones. I'm engaged in one of them and advocate for the other. The first is, you all read the New York Times upcoding thing. End upcoding. Figure out how to solve upcoding. It's not as hard as we think. And that's about 10 to 12 billion a year and growing. It's a growing fraction. Because while the value-based payment yeah. requires risk adjustment, you've got other programs in Medicare the ACOs and stuff that'll have risk adjustment in it, and you've got Medicare Advantage. Um, you look skeptical about the 10 to 12 billion. I'm not sure you can capture it all, but I've got a project. We're hoping that Eric Schmidt and his uh, philanthropy will fund it. We've put together computer scientists from MIT, University of Michigan, and Penn, plus us health policy wonks, to use machine learning to replace HCC RAF scores. Now, Anyone in this room think I can't do better? And I can do better for two reasons, right? That thing is, it, it's not the best computer machine learning we can do today. And we can add lots of other outside data that they refuse to integrate into it. So we're going to test ours against them. And we think we can do this in six months. We'll see. I'm very optimistic and aggressive. We're going to test it for accuracy of annual predictions, and then we're going to also test it for equity issues because you can use geography, race, health literacy, and other places where we have data. And also, by the way, one of the things the HCC doesn't integrate is drugs 
utilization, which is like you're throwing out good data. You're not using all the data you have. So we think we can actually solve that six to 12 months. Now, then they have to adopt it and, and implement it. We also think with the latest machine learning techniques, and again, this is, I'm skating out way over my heel. I'm just repeating what the computer scientists have told me. There are a bunch of different techniques for countering upcoding. So if places are, oh, this is what they're doing, we're gonna counter, we're gonna do it. There are now machine learning techniques called adversarial machine learning to counter that gaming and to make the scoring, if not completely, largely impervious to upcoding. That's one aspect. The second aspect is for savings that will be substantial is in Medicare Advantage. Right now, Medicare Advantage premiums are tied to a benchmark that is traditional Medicare. Yeah. We know Stupid. prior to the ACA, we overpaid 14%. The ACA brought that down to one or 2%. Why do we have that benchmark anyway? Well, it served the purpose way back when, when Medicare Advantage was starting out, to get the companies to go everywhere. They are everywhere. We don't need it anymore. Get rid of it and just have competitive bidding. The guesstimates on that are up to $230 billion over 10, 23 billion a year. Well, you combine 10 billion of risk adjustment with 23 billion or you know, something like that, call it 20 billion, that's $30 billion a year. Is that gonna save the trust fund? Probably not. Is it gonna kick it down the road for five, six years? Very likely, and then we'll add a tax adjustment. You know, there's not, no magic bullet here, but why we don't do those things. I mean, again, this is where Congress is hesitant, but the risk adjustment does not require congressional work. That's why we're, we're working it, because I think it's the simplest way to get in. The competitive bidding do, with no benchmark does require legislation. Yeah, you know, Wyatt, my favorite fact about the trust fund is they've actually been able to stretch it out a few years, the, the last couple of years. It was before 2026. Yeah. And the reason, <laughs> reasons are a million people died from COVID, and they were largely very sick people, and they'd be the ones consuming Medicare funds now. So that, that helped. And then Autohelm, you know, the crappy Alzheimer's drug was baked into the formula. Now that's come out. Um, of course, they're back again. Well, um, thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, I'm going to ask you uh, to finish this sentence, and you can only take a couple of minutes to do it. <laughs> uh, big, bold prediction. Five years from now, U.S. healthcare will... I only get one prediction. First of all, well, you can make as it'll as still as be at 18% of GDP. Uh, I do not think we're going over 20%. I think we found what the pain point is that we're never going, it's 18%. So that's one. Okay. Two, I think we'll probably shrink 1,000 hospitals. We're at 5,000, right? We're going down to 4,000. I made a similar bold prediction about hospitals a while ago because I thought the bond market would be more of my friend and it turned out not to be my friend, but I do think they're just going. Third, I think we are going to have a crisis in healthcare, a major crisis in healthcare sometime in the next five years. And it behooves us, all of you and me and everyone who knows really well how the healthcare system is underperforming, to come up with a model that we think will do a lot better. It's not the NHS, we know that, right? Well, it's got a lot of problems, but let me tell you, you know, five pounds for a pair of glasses, pretty amazing. Lots of seniors would kill for that. What is the structure of the financing? What's the structure of the delivery system? And how do we provide those incentives? Because we're going to have one shot after a crisis. One shot. 
and we better make it a really good shot. And I think that's critical to prepare for. I don't know when it's going to happen. It could happen sooner. It could happen, you know, if we had some major academic center go belly up, if we had yeah. lots of the insurance companies struggling, I don't know. But I do think before five years are up, we're probably going to have a big crisis. And, you know, I think we've got to be ready. So that's why I just got a book contract. And so maybe this is my bold prediction. The title of the book is Creative Rejuvenation, right? We're all used to, in the, you guys are used to in the business world, right? Creative destruction. Turns out creative destruction does not work in the government regulated areas, right? You can't get rid of a utility. You can't just destroy it and people not have electricity. How do we creatively rejuvenate these ossified, sclerotic parts of our economy? And it's not just healthcare. We see the same thing. I work at higher education. I'm a beneficiary of higher education, right? The tax code. Talk about a sclerotic system that everyone thinks sucks, right? And you can go on and on, right? Public transportation. Housing is a really big problem at the moment. We're having this huge housing crisis. Anyway, Part of what I'm trying to think about and part of what I'm asking you to think about is what's the creative rejuvenation possibility? How do we get there? That's what I'm thinking about. And then I'm asking you, what do we do when that moment happens? What would you tell if you were sitting at the policy councils? What would you recommend? That's really, really important. And having more smart people do it, that's going to be really critical to getting the best policy. Because it is going to be sausage making. And there are going to be fights. <laughs> but you know, we've got one shot. Uh, ask not what healthcare can do. <laughs> uh, what can you do for healthcare? And you know, your brother Rom never wastes a crisis. Well, I, I well that's by the way, Winston Churchill. Right after the war, it's not Rom. He stole it because I gave it to him. <laughs> of course, we'll hear Rom's side of the story next year. There's that, not Rom's side of the story. I've got the truth. <laughs> Anyway, I hope you all have had as much fun with this conversation as I've had being a part of it. So let's give Zeke a big hand. Huh? Once again, that was me, your host, Dave Johnson, having a fireside chat with Dr. Zeke Emanuel at the ninth annual Kane Brothers Private Company Healthcare Conference at the New York Palace Hotel. I hope you enjoyed our discussion. I certainly enjoyed participating in it. Zeke is fantastic. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep doing what you do to make our healthcare system kinder, smarter, and more accessible and affordable for all.